This is episode 67 of the Reformed Brotherhood. It's only appropriate that when we come to the end of our study of the things of God that we should be studying what happens to us at the end, at the end of our lives. And the glorious hope that we as Christians have is that of entering into our rest in heaven. We are taking a slightly different tone this evening. You've probably noticed things are a little bit different uh, off the get-go. And we just wanted to bring things down a little bit um, and pay our respects to a great reform teacher uh, that we lost this last week. Um, If you haven't heard the news, uh, R.C. Sproul passed away uh, and transitioned into glory on uh, Thursday of last week on December 14th. So we, um, we're not going to do an episode tonight about R.C. Sproul. Um, there's all sorts of amazing tributes that are out there, both written. I'm sure there will be lots of podcasts talking about him. And, and we wanted to take, um, take the night and really dedicate this episode to Dr. Sproul. Um, I know he has had a huge impact in my life um, as a theologian, um, as sort of impacting me in terms of practical piety and just someone to look up to and emulate. Um, So we just wanted to take tonight and really dedicate this episode. I mean, R.C. Sproul looms so large over not just theology, but over um, kind of audio distribution of theology. So we, we thought it would be fitting to just take a night, dedicate this episode to him, but keep doing what he has encouraged and taught us all to do, and that's to teach good, crisp theology, uh, and to get it out there for people to hear and learn. It's a fitting tribute. Just this past week, I was looking over my copy of The Holiness of God, which was one of his seminal works, and I was reminded in picking it up that this was actually my father's copy that he had gifted to me. And so it was a special thing for me to be flipping through it again and seeing all of my father's notes, all the things that really impacted him and finding that they were very much the same things that impacted me. And that's the kind of teacher that he was for our generation, even even my father's generation. So it's altogether fitting that we take time to honor him by continuing to podcast well and to dive deep into theology because he had this unique and singular gift, in my opinion, to take what was complicated and like a country doctor, bring it into arm's length for us to understand in a really different and profound way. And he was a brilliant man. And yet, whenever you hear him interact and relate to people, he does so in a way that's so kind and so loving that the theology just drips from him into your life, and it makes sense, and you want to apply it, and you're changed by it. And that was the power of God working through him. So he will be missed. His ministry is strong, and his legacy is as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think if we can um, if we can do anything to carry on his legacy um, and be half of the podcasters that he was, um, we will have a, a grand legacy of our own. So we're, um, we're encouraged that he, um, he's no longer suffering and we're encouraged that, um, his ministry carries on. Um, and tonight we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about a subject that was near and dear to his heart. Um, and actually one of the first subjects that I ever heard him speak on, and that is the providence of God. So we're, um, we're excited to sort of talk through this. It's going to be a little bit more technical at times than some of our other episodes have, but um, we're, we're pretty excited to just go through this um, in honor of his memory and to kind of unpack a little bit of what he's taught us um, in this area. Right. And we're going to frame our conversation by looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith, 
chapter five specifically. So if that's something that you want to follow along with us, please do so. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and read um, chapter five, article one. It says, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So this is um, this is kind of a mouthful article. It's one of those ones that packs a ton of information in there. Um, Jesse, do you have any thoughts on that uh, article before we really dive into it? <laughs> Thanks for just kicking it off. It's a mouthful. So here, go, go ahead and explain <laughs> it. I mean, I'm trying to think through how would I define providence like very succinctly. And I mean, nobody says it better than the WCF, but I would say like the, the providence of God for me is, is the doctrine of God's involvement in the world and the daily affairs of our lives. So what that's getting at is, I think, the way in which he is involved in our lives, the power and the character through which he involves himself. But that more than just being in control of all things, there is a real intimacy that comes along. But we have to understand God's character, and in some ways, the simplicity of God, how that influences his wonderful and benevolent control over all things. Yeah, so maybe just to sort of um, give us a starting point, let me read um, question 11 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the question says, what are God's works of providence? And the answer says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So, um, you know, when we talked about creation and when we think about creation, most of the time we think about kind of the initial point of creation, right? right? God sort of sets up everything and everything comes into be at the command of his word. And what providence really is getting at, if you really boil it all down, is that it's not just that he controls everything, but it's that he preserves everything. And those two concepts are really, really related to each other in Reformed theology. So, um, you know, you can go with something like Jonathan Edwards, where he actually is saying that God is not only sustaining creation every moment, but every moment is a new creation that God makes. Now, there's some issues with that, but that's that's sort of the direction we have to go, is that God is choosing actively at every moment to continue to sustain the universe, and he sustains it just as he wants it to be, just as he desires it to be. Now there's, you know, we get get into questions about how does sin play into that. And that comes a little bit later in this section, but you can't separate God's preservation from his, um, from his providence. Right. And that's where reformed theology, I think really gets this right is that when you have a, have a system that doesn't recognize that correctly. So look at it this way. If, if the um, open theist argument was correct, right, that God is not able to see past the moment in time because the future doesn't exist yet, how could he sustain the future the way that he desires to say, sustain it if he doesn't actually know what that is? How could he, how could he bring creation to point Z, being the eschaton, if he doesn't actually know what point A, B, and C is, and sustains creation through all of those points. So that preservation and that um, governing are like two sides of, of one coin in terms of how the Reformed think about this. 
Right. I mean, if creation was a unique exercise of divine energy that caused the world to come into being, then what we mean by providence is a continued exercise of that same energy where God, according to his will, is going to keep all creatures in being, involve himself in their events, and then direct all things to the appointed end. So where this like really identifies with me is, of course, I have to think about some some things in terms of like finance. And I think of everybody having like a portfolio manager, let's say, who wants to guide and direct their money. And that's a purposeful action for most people. And this is the same way in the sense that the model is a purposeful personal management with total hands-on control. So God is completely in charge of the world and his hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. Right. And, and that's, you know, we have to, we have to keep those things connected. And, you know, we, we, we remarked that this was one of the first things that I learned about R.C. Sproul. And I actually learned about him saying it before I heard him say it. Because I remember I had a professor in college in my theology class who talked about this guy out there, this theologian she heard on the radio, who said that even the way that the dust floats around in the air is controlled by God. Right. And she was she was saying it in like this sort of like almost like she was spitting it out of her mouth. She was so like disgusted with the idea that God would be so meticulously in control of that. But the the thing you have to remember and, and R.C. Sproul says this so beautifully, is that if even one molecule in the universe is outside of God's control, then the whole universe might as well be outside of God's control. Exactly. Because he's preserving all of it, but he's preserving, is he preserving it except in that one spot where it's beyond his control? Because if it's not in his control, how could he preserve it? Right, exactly. And, and far from being a really odious doctrine, the doctrine of providence teaches us that we are never in the grip of blind forces. So things like fortune, chance, luck, fate, all that stuff is irrelevant because all that happens to us is divinely planned. And each event then is going to come as a summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that everything is for our spiritual and eternal good. That's really precious. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about like reading Providence and how we shouldn't do that. But just think about something for a second. We can always look back at history and say that whatever happened is providentially what happened. Right. Um, where we can get into some troubles, where we try to um, try to read off of history what God's holy counsel and his, his sort of secret will was in that act of providence. But... Um, you know, uh, the news came out on Thursday that Dr. Sproul had died, and um, I had been listening to his um, theology lectures that were on Renewing Your Mind, but I was a little bit behind. So I kind of assumed that they were going to launch something special on Friday morning. Um, so I went into my podcast app, and I updated the most current one, and it was his final lecture in the Systematic Theology sequence, right? So um, Foundations of Systematic Theology is a 60-part um, theology lecture series that he did. And the last, um, the last episode is him talking about the believer's final rest. And so we can look at this and say, wow, look at this providence. God knew in eternity past that on a certain point, a certain date months ago, multiple months ago, they would start playing episodes and all of them would be planned out such that the day after Dr. Sproul died, he would be delivering a lecture on the show about the believer's final rest. Right. Now, you know, there's probably people out there that would look at that and say, well, you know, 
I'm sure we could calculate the odds and they probably feel like they're a lot higher than, you know, a lot bigger than, um, than they are. But it, in reality, it's just random chance. But is that really the simpler explanation or is the simpler explanation that there's actually a God who's in control and planned things like that out? And that's what the confession I think is driving at, because like you said, if you're trying to read Providence, that's mostly just a fool's errand. It's not helpful. It's not wise. But what Providence teaches us is that we can be resolute in walking through life, understanding that we have a father who is lovingly governing all things. So whether you become sick or have financial difficulties, whatever challenge you face, you get to look at that through the lens of that God has not forsaken you and that things are not outside of his control. And that's the primary thing. We get distracted when we focus on other stuff, but it's it's little things like that where we say, well, isn't that a coincidental? Or maybe you've heard like, have you heard that phrase? Like coincidence is when God chooses to remain anonymous, which is yeah. ridiculous. But the the point of it is we're trying to kind of push forward this idea that God is in control of all things, that he providentially cares for all things, that the world is sustained, not just like your heartbeat and mine, which is great, but that he is actively involved, working things out, as Paul would say, for the good of those who love him. Yeah. So that's a that's a real thing, like a real reality. It's hard for me sometimes to remember that that's the place, that's the rubric in which I should plant my feet when I walk out the door in the morning, as opposed to kind of this passive view that things just happen to me and that I kind of have to try to overcome or conquer those things without understanding that the loving father is putting all these pieces together. Yeah. And just another, you know, one more thing to call out in this article before we move on to the next one is he says, um, you know, it says here he governs all creatures, actions, and things. And so, you know, it's not trying to say, well, there's these three things he governs. They're using that as sort of a way to say everything, right? It's all creatures. So all created things, everything they do. And then there's this third catch-all category of things, right? So they're saying everything is is controlled, directed, and governed by God from the greatest even to the least. So not not just the big events of history, not just the big shakers and movers on the you know on the pages of history, but the um, the butterfly that flew you know across the field on the other side of the world today was governed by God. And it says here that he does so by the free and immutable counsel of his own will. So it's there's nothing compelling God to govern the way he is. That he's doing it freely and of his own volition, of his own will. And it says, to the praise of his glory, his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And so one of the things that I think is, um, is really interesting about the Reformed tradition in the confessional line of thinking is it's not just the the broad um, theological points that are required by the confession or the catechisms, but the response to those points is also governed by the catechism. So we are confessional. If you're a confessionally bound person, if you've submitted yourself to a confession, you are obligated to praise God and to give glory regarding his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy in response to the doctrine of providence. And I think that's a really beautiful thing about this is that sometimes we look at providence and we talk about hard providences, right? We talk about things that come to us that are difficult and we have a tendency and we have a, um, a temptation to 
buck against those, right? To kick against the goads. But even the hard providences in life are still sweet to us when we understand that they come from God for our good and for his glory. Especially the hard providences. I mean, I think that's what makes this so wonderfully sweet to the Christian is knowing when those things occur, that they are not abstracted from what is best for us and what gives God glory. And to your point, in uniting all those things, we end up right back at understanding something about the simplicity of God, that his providence is his wisdom, and that we see that we're affirming that the universe is not chaotic, that right. God created all this with a purpose, and he's providentially controlling it and moving it toward fulfillment of that purpose. So yeah. that's just a really, I think, empowering thing to remember, no matter what where our lot in life is. whether And we ought to praise God as well for the providences that are really temporarily sweet like wonderful marriages and in kind yeah. friendships and loving churches all those things too are by his design and we should be quick to recognize that he does those because he is good and still providentially in control yeah so do you have um do you have five two in front of you i do so article two reads although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of god the first cause all things come to pass immutably and infallibly yet by the same providence he ordaineth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So this is um, one of the things that is is important to remember about the Westminster Confession of Faith is that each chapter is an argument in, in like the technical sense, is that it's a series of um, statements that drive towards kind of a final conclusion of sorts. And so this second one is an expansion of the phrase in the first one that says, according to his infallible foreknowledge. So what they're saying is, in in relation to that foreknowledge, the decree of God, which is the first cause, is what causes all things to come to pass immutably. So they're, they're, they're pushing back against um, some ideas, particularly coming from the Arminians that were derived from um, some Jesuit thinking that God simply causes what he already knows to be the case to come in, come into effect. So what they're saying is that it's actually the other direction. His right. knowledge and decree in relation to that, all things come to pass immutably. And he says, by the same providence, he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes. So what it's doing is it's setting up this, this distinction between pro- the primary cause and secondary causes. And the best analogy to get your head around what this is, is if I were to say to you, well, why does it, why does it rain? Well, you could answer that one of two ways. I mean, there's probably more than one way to answer, but you could answer it by saying, you know, well, there's, there's dust particles in the air and it's high enough in the altitude that the water condenses around the dust particles. And once they reach a certain weight, then they fall out of the sky and that's rain right? There's a physical explanation. And that's what the, the confessioner is talking about when it's talking about second causes, right? The natural explanations of things, the secondary causes, that's the, the, the way that we think about that. The first cause is always God. Right. So you could say, why does it rain? You can say, well, God, because God ordered it to rain. God ordained it to rain at this point in time. And that would be a true statement in relation to the first cause. Um, or you could say, well, there's these dust particles, blah, blah, blah. And that would be a true statement in relation to the second causes. Um, and this is important when we get into discussions of like divine sovereignty versus human responsibility, right? Even the way you set up that statement can imply things, right? Is it versus or is it 
divine sovereignty and human you know human responsibility. And so we see this in passages like when Joseph's brothers come before him and he says, God meant it for good, but you meant it for evil. Or he says it the other direction. Or um, when we get to um, the passage in Acts where um, one of the apostles, probably Peter, says, um, you wicked men crucified him. And then he says, according to the definite preordained plan of God. Right. So there's that dual causality that, yep, it is just as true to say that the men who crucified Christ did so because they did it out of the wickedness of their heart. That's the secondary cause. But it's also true that they did it because God ordained them to do it. And that's the first cause. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. This is just a matter of getting things right in terms of order. The easiest way to think about it is that God is really always the first cause because right. he is sovereignly in control and preordaining all things. But there are second causes that essentially like affirm the first cause, but they can't exist without the first cause. Right. Yeah. And we're not necessarily talking about like the first cause, although we are talking about the first cause in terms of time, but this is talking about um, sort of like the cause behind the cause. It's like a logical order. Yeah. And in this is, this is something that the, the Westminster divines are pulling out of a relationship with uh, Thomas Aquinas, right? And he's pulling it from Aristotelian categories. So, it, you know, there's a lot of philosophy that goes into this, but the basic idea is, you know, more or less, if I'm playing pool, I'm the first cause of the ball moving. The, the first cause of everything that happens once I initiate the, the, I don't know if they call it a player or runner or whatever, but once I initiate what's going on, when I strike that, that ball all of the reactions that happen are second causes. I'm right. the first cause of all of those things. I mean, in this analogy, obviously I'm the second <laughs> cause in relation to God being the first cause, but I, you know what I mean? That was a deep pool metaphor. By the way, it's the cue ball. It's the cue ball you're striking. The cue ball. I mean, sports, sports, those kinds of games, it's not my thing. No, that was good. But this is important because when we needed to set that framework up front, so that way when we have other conversations tomorrow, next year, whatever down the road, if you set up those boundaries well, you will prevent yourself from falling into errors when you start talking about other pieces of theology, including this one. Right. And so then there's these last three terms at the end where it says either necessarily, freely, or contingently. And so these are different kinds of sort of states of affairs. Um, Something that's necessary in a technical sense means that it could not have been otherwise. Um, there is almost nothing in creation that's actually necessary, but this is really looking at like once God decided to create in a certain way, then there are certain things that are necessary causes. So, right. um, you have, if you put oxygen and a spark in the same place, you're going to have fire or an explosion of some sort. That's mostly almost as close to a necessary state of affairs as we get, um, you know, it, finding something that is actually philosophically necessary is incredibly difficult. Um, when we talk about contingently, that would be saying something like, um, if I push record on this podcast, then my voice will be transmitted into my computer. So if I don't push record, then my voice won't be transmitted into the computer. So the fact that my voice is being transmitted into the computer now is something that God caused contingently but he brought about the part of the if statement, which is called right. the protasis, right? And then freely, to be honest with you, I'm not really sure. Um, I think that probably has to do more with like the will of creatures, that there are things that come about that don't come about by means of necessity 
or by means of contingency, but are genuinely free choices that free agents make. But God ordains those too. So what they're saying is it, you know, the old kind of classic question of, well, if God ordains it, then it's not a free choice. They're just saying like, we just deny that category. We're, we're not even granting you the premise that those two things are contradictory to each other. Right. This is just emphasizing the great diversity of control God has over all things. I like that they break it out. I think some would argue that's not necessary, no pun intended, but <laughs> what it does is it emphasizes that there is a lot of thoughtfulness in trying to understand all that occurs in our world right. and to understand how God's first cause brings about those things through volition. Right. So I'm, I'm with you. Like there's a lot of your, I think your example of the spark is a good one for like necessarily maybe also would be like laws of logic, for instance, like the creation of logic does have certain things that must necessarily follow contingent makes sense, especially in the course of nature and freely. I also agree with you. I always interpret that to be, in some respects, the understanding of the will of creatures. Right. Yeah. And, and just because I'm sure that I'm going to get an email, let me head it off. I understand that the, if there's a spark and there's oxygen, there will be an explosion. I understand that that's a contingency, but like I said, it's very difficult to actually come up with something that's a necessary situation in creation, right. partially because if it's necessary, then it's, it's like the air we breathe. It's always present. It's always the case it's hard to even think about those things because if it's necessary, then it's, we've always been there. It's like the fish that's in the water and doesn't know what water is. Right. Right. So, um, article three says God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means yet is free to work above or without above and against them at his pleasure. When I hear this, the third article, I always think of the occasion in second Chronicles, I believe when, the king of Israel, Ahab and Jehoshaphat get together and they get all riled up because God has ordained for them to go ahead and go up to, I think it's Ramoth Gilead and uh, declare war there. And this is the account where basically Ahab, if I remember correctly, is basically trying to whip up Jehoshaphat's support of this battle, which has really nothing to do with Judah. And he gets his agreement. And right before they go out to do that, he says, is there not like a prophet of the Lord who can speak to us? And the Lord had put basically a, a lying spirit in all the other prophets that was egging them on to go up and, and you know, get after it in battle. And so the prophet of the Lord comes and basically says like, yeah, this is not a good idea. You're, this is going to end horribly. And uh, Ahab is like, I told you this dude always says negative things about me. And so as if he was trying to somehow change the course of events, this is where they go into va- to battle. He says, Jehoshaphat, yeah, you dress up like royalty. I am going to actually dress down and hide my identity because the enemy, unbeknownst to them, has been told, only go after the king of Israel. Don't touch anybody else. That's who I want. So it seems like on the outside, if you're just reading this, like he's doing, you know, Ahab is reading this correctly. Like he's going to try to basically come and trick God. And so there's that wonderful line where it basically says, an archer drew his bow and at random shot an arrow and it struck him right between, struck Ahab right between the weak spot in his his armor, basically. And so I think about this and pairing it with, here's God making use of ordinary means in this situation. There perhaps wasn't anything particularly miraculous, except, of course, his guiding hand. But we have the wood of the arrow and the, the wind that day and the location of everybody, all these things, but he's using them. It doesn't right. listen to this. I mean, he has to use 
some kind of special providence, some kind of miraculous thing, though he will do that. But here, I think most of the time, he's just using ordinary means. And I love that story because he is the one, this shows that God does providentially stand above all things. And even standing above all things, he'll just use the ordinary stuff to bring right. about what he wants to do. So that, I don't know if you thought about that. That's what I always think of when I read the third article. No, that makes sense. And I think it's a good example. And and so, you know, to go back to the rain analogy, when we see rain, it's ordinarily because God is ordaining the normal rain cycle. Right? Sure. He's preserving and using that rain cycle to bring water down onto the ground for whatever his purpose is. What this is saying is that he works ordinarily through those means, but he could work without them. So he could cause water to spontaneously come into existence in the middle of the air as rain droplets falling to the ground. He could do that. Um, He could work above them, meaning he could do something um, that is sort sort of outside of the ordinary, but is working sort of on another level. So almost like another strange level of causation, um, or he could work against them, meaning that he could um, he could actually do something that causes the ordinary means of nature, the ordinary providence that he's engaged to work differently. So that would be where we see things like the miracles in in the gospels, particularly, right? Or the axe head floating is a good example, right? Right. He's he's normally ordained iron or steel or whatever that axe head was made of to be denser than water and therefore to sink. But in that one instance, he just circumvented all that because it was it was his purpose to bring that axe head to the surface. Right. And that's a like a a profound amount of control that especially when God st- kind of steps in and miraculously does that kind of thing, it still has all of the signs of it being something ordinary in the end. So where I'm right. kind of going with that is I'm thinking about the wedding at Cana. So there we have all of this water. It becomes wine, but it's a legit wine. And, that, right. and that's for sure because we know by way of the story itself that people remarked, this is super good wine. Like, I presume that wine God makes is going to be awesome. But it, it wasn't like it was faux wine. Like it had all of the assemblings of something that had been fermenting over time. Its chemical composition had been utterly changed. And yet God stepped in and did that, like you said, in a moment. Right. Yeah. So God can make wine through the normal process of a man deciding to make wine, crushing grapes, fermenting them, all of that, right? Right. Or he could use those means and speed them up. So he could make really great wine that normally would take 30 years to ferment and age properly. He could make that instantly. Or he could completely do something different and use water which has none of the elements exactly. required for wine. And that's what this is saying is that in most cases, the way God works is according to those natural means and his ordinary providence, right? And you know, Mike Mike Horton talks about this a lot where he talks about how we're always looking for God's hand in kind of the miraculous. There's this supernaturalism in, in evangelicalism that we we want to see God work miraculously. And we kind of assume that if he's not working miraculously, he's not working at all. And so sometimes cessationists get accused of being like semi-deists, right? They get accused that God set up the universe and just sort of lets it, lets it do its thing and he doesn't really intervene very often. But even that language of saying, well, God doesn't intervene very often is assuming that there's ever a time that is operating away from him. Right? Exactly. He doesn't ever intervene because he's constantly involved in the process. Right. And that's where, like you said before, the reform tradition, I think, has a lot of value to offer. Because we're not even saying, well, I don't think, I won't put words in your up, but I'm not even saying like, 
well, we should we should respect the fact that you know everything is glorious. Like a, a beautiful sunset is glorious and providential. It, it it is. I think that it's just that the glory of God is often perhaps most predominantly reflected in monotony. The fact right. that there are the changing of seasons, that there is a rising and setting of the sun, there is something beautiful about that. So it is a little bit uh, like backwards for Christians to say, I don't see God working. What what that often says to me is that uh, we are not appreciating that he's working. Right. We have not understood this doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you talked about how God is causing all of our hearts to beat. Well, that's the most monotonous thing ever. And it should be monotonous. Yeah, right? exactly. If it's, not, if it's not monotonous, there's a problem. <laughs> yeah, right. But still, we need to recognize that every time my heart contracts to squeeze blood and push it around my body, that God is the one ordering that. And there will be a day where my heart stops doing that. And God ordered that too. Right. He's the one that brings that about as the first cause. Um, and so it's really important for us as Christians to sort of bring it to a practical point, to learn to thank God for the, like we said earlier, for the hard providences, right? If if your kid goes to the doctor and has a great checkup and everything's fine, praise God. If your kid goes to the doctor and there's something really, really wrong, that's a hard providence, but praise God for that too. Right. I totally agree with that. And the only thing I, I just occurred to me in hearing you say that was when we speak about our hearts beating in particular as one just really good example, the first cause emphasizes that there is always volition, there is active effort. There's always something that God is doing. And in, in other words, it's not just passive. So for instance, this example is probably only going to make sense for dudes. So I apologize. But you know, like some, there's some things that you do every day that become so ingrained in you that you can basically do them without thinking. One of those things for a lot of dudes is like shaving. I don't know how yeah. you are with shaving, but like it becomes something where basically you just start to do it and it starts out passive and then, or starts out active and then just becomes passive. Right. That's not the case with all the things God is doing. He's big enough, powerful enough, cognizant enough that all these things are active. So we should praise him that our hearts are beating. Yeah. He's, not, he's not just shaving as well with our heartbeats and, and forgetting about that. This is all him. I can tell you about that metaphor. <laughs> this is all that to say, like everything is active. There's not a single thing that God is doing where he isn't just kind of like kicking back on a deck chair and letting everything kind of run its course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good for us to remember is that God is always consciously preserving right. creation. And, and it's not like a side effect of his being. Exactly. Right? It's not, that was better than I said. <laughs> yeah. It's not that by just existing creation is preserved. It's, exactly. It's that God is consciously actively. I mean, Hebrews talks about how it's talking about the sun specifically, but the external operations of the Trinity are undivided, all that stuff. It says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So it's, it's, it's not even just, you know, we think of it. These are all, that's a accommodated language, but think about it this way. The same word that God spoke to bring creation into existence, the same phrase, if you will, or the same sentence that he spoke is the same sentence he's speaking in order to keep creation in existence. He has to continue to talk in that metaphor and that accommodated language to continue to preserve creation. Right. So although his act, his work of creation ceased, his work of providence continues on. And, and again, like we said earlier, it's kind of the same, it's flip sides of the same coin. Providence is God's sustaining of creation. Creating was his initiation of creation. Right. Exactly. You said that way better than I did. I was just trying to <laughs> emphasize that. I think sometimes we create this hierarchy 
of first causes. And we think, well, like you were saying before, super important things, traumatic things in my life, wonderful kind of in your face blessings. Those clearly are God's active work, but the dust in the air, that's just as active. Right. If you start to separate these two, then you get into a situation where you could have essentially rogue molecules in the universe that aren't acting under God's direct control. There's no like residual power where it's just because like you said, God exists, things will just work right because they're of lesser importance or they seem to have some kind of habitual or repetitive or seasonal nature to them. Everything like essentially winter would cease to come if God did not actively every day bring it forward in some way. Right. Yeah. Do you want to go ahead and read um, article four? Yes. I just got super excited there. All right. Article four. This is a big one. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends, yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or prover of sin. Boom. Boom, yeah. So so this article heavy. Um, more or less is saying that, um, you know, as I said, the, the confession is sort of building on itself. And in the same way that in some of Paul's letters, he kind of says, but someone will say this. They're doing the same thing. So they're saying, all right, so given articles one, two, and three, somebody is going to say, well, that makes God the author of sin. Right. And so what they're saying is that's not the case. They're also saying, well, somebody's going to say, well, the, certainly the fall of man was not something that God ordained. And they're all saying, well, no, let's, let's slow down a minute. Everything, all things, and not just by bare permission, right? That gets back to what we were just saying. It's not as though God stepped back. We talk about sort of like God allowed the fall. We talk about that, but that allowing is not the same as if I allow something to happen. Right. If I allow something to happen, it's because I fail to act. I fail to um, exercise power. Exactly. It's an absence of my influence. When God allows something to happen, it's it's a presence of his influence in a slightly different way. So, um, you know, we, we don't want to try to parse those things out too much. But what this is saying is that God not only let the fall happen in terms of um, he saw that it was coming and he could have stopped it, but he chose not to. He, he didn't just see that it was coming. He declared and decreed that it would come. Um, but he did that in such a way that was wise and powerful, Right. It right. wasn't just, um, it wasn't capricious. It wasn't that he, he did the best that he could. And this is what he came up with. This was exactly what he intended to happen for all eternity. Right. Hence the right. reference to infinite goodness as well. That exactly. this expresses something of kind of a moral level that we do not understand and cannot comprehend. But that rest assured the scripture is clear that even when God quote unquote allows something like the fall, that it is under the auspice of it being infinitely good. Yeah. And so then when we get to the end, it says, um, but all of that said, right? It says, yet so. However, even though I said that, or even though we, we affirm that, he's saying the sinfulness that comes from creatures only comes from the creatures. 
And you know, this is one of those one of those places that I think we have to sometimes play our mystery card of how can it be that God is the first cause of our sin and ordains our sin and orders our sin um, and not be the author of our sin. And on some level, we kind of have to say, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I don't have a good answer to explain that. Now, there are philosophers who probably would say that they have the ability to do that, but I'm not 100% sure. And I think this is one of those areas we just have to be comfortable with a little bit of mystery. But it's saying that those sins, the sinfulness and the sins themselves are not coming from God. Even though he ordains it, he's able to ordain sin without himself sinning or being the originator of sin. Right. And this is one of the instances where even though this is tremendously confusing it'll make your mind i think do a somersault if you think about it long enough yeah what we can always go back to with great certitude is the character of god and so we understand him being good and obviously being completely separate from sin as holy and so in that way this makes sense but in the other way of us trying to logically reason it out through way of causes it doesn't so i always just kind of hang my hat on i go back to the character of god and yet this is true in two different ways. It's just one way I can't understand. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. And and maybe not ever, but just certainly not yet. And the way that I like to, to sort of explain this is we have a couple premises, right? We have premise A, that God is the first cause of all things. We have premise B, that God ordains sin and not by bare, bare permission. And we have premise C, that God is not the author or approver of sin. And right. those three premises... I can't synthesize together without a fourth premise. And the difficulty is that I am not capable of understanding that fourth premise. So there's some premise out there that God has, that God knows and God understands in his archetypal uh, knowledge of himself that explains how those three things cohere. And as a creature and as a fallen creature, I'm not, that's not within my pay grade. So, we have to be willing when we're doing theology at times to say, look, I know there's a fourth premise, but I don't, I don't know what it is. And I probably never will. Um, we have to learn to be okay with that because the, the issue is that if we start to push into the mystery of that and say, we, um, we can know that, or we can resolve that. We end up with some really squirrely things. Um, there are good, good reformed authors that otherwise are rock solid on this that postulate things that make God, not in so many words, but make actually make God the author of sin, right? And we can't go there. Since we're nerding out on this then, I'm just going to say that I often think about this as null hypothesis and then like a, you know, like an alternative hypothesis. So the null would be that God ordains sin and the alternative would be that God doesn't ordain sin. And I think when we go to the scriptures, we do not find sufficient evidence to affirm the null hypothesis. So we just end up understanding that the alternative must be true. And that, as you said, there's other data that we can synthesize at some point, hopefully in our knowledge of God, probably in the eternal realm where that will all become clear to us as we continue to learn from him. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll move on to um, article five. He says the most wise, righteous and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled 
and to raise them to a more close and constant dependent for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. So um, we'll go through this pretty quick because I want to make sure we get, get through the whole chapter. But more or less what this is saying is sometimes God lets even Christians sin. And he had, does it for a variety of reasons. Right. Um, and they use kind of the catch-all at the end, I think is funny, is they give they give all these possible reasons, and then they basically say, or he might have some other reason. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. we don't. it's kind of like when you do it, like you read a job description, it's like, well, they're going to do this task, and they're going to do this task, and then it's other tasks as assigned. Right. It's kind of the same same thought process, I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I chalk this one up kind of very simplistically to, if we always got our own way, we would never know what it was to follow after God. Yeah. So sometimes he's going to let us fall into our own pits and then we're going to realize that we need help getting out of them. And, you know, other times I think this just speaks to, I appreciate this in here because it speaks to the fact that God in his love for his children will do two things. One is he will discipline them. Yeah. And the second is that sometimes he will withdraw himself from them, leading them into a desert so that they might appreciate more what it is to be close to him, even if everything is going great in your life. Yep. So I think that this is really important for us to keep in mind. And again, having that good, clean perspective about providence means that when those times happen, we might cry out to God and kind of come before him asking that he would fulfill his promise to deliver us, no matter what that is, to forgive, to deliver us, to restore his presence onto us. Yeah. And and one of the things that I think is so amazing about this article is, you know, sometimes we think that we've got a particular sin beat. Right. So I, um, I, when I was in college, there was this, um, sort of men's group. I think some of the girls floors did it too, but they did this program called lust free living. And, and it was basically like this six week course that taught you how to be free of lust. Right. So these are freshmen in college taking this and they think that after six weeks, they're somehow going to have beat lust. And, and what this is saying, and this is just, this is just blows my mind is that the divines here are articulating sometimes God will let you, even when you're doing great, especially right. when you're doing great, is right. what they seem to be saying, he's going to let you fall into a sin that you thought you had conquered in order to prove to you and show you and remind you that you're not everything you think you are, right? So he's literally going to knock you down a peg so that you can remember that the corruption of sin is still throughout the entire man. Right. right. That I mean, we didn't. We're not talking about the sanctification chapter. It does say that sanctification is throughout, but there's also corruption throughout. And so it's saying sometimes he will let you fall into sin to remind you that you haven't arrived yet. You're not fully sanctified yet. Sorry, John Wesley, but you're not totally sanctified. <laughs> to get my jabs in at Wesley when I can. No, that was good. I'm sure he appreciates you calling him out right now. Yeah. Yeah. He he probably doesn't care at all. Well, John he, John Wesley is totally sanctified, presumably. That, that is true. He, so, yeah, he's doing just fine. He's, he's great. Well, one of the ways that providence gets proved out, so to speak, is in understanding Christ as the Redeemer. So the grand story of the Bible goes from creation through to new creation. And in the center of that stage is the cross of Jesus Christ. So God's providential right. relationship with his creation is, is no different. It rests on the cross to give it real substance. And we have Jesus, the true man, fulfilling the creation mandate. And when we sin, we get to experience that all over again. And I could right. see how in my small, tiny, little human mind, 
that there might be occasions for God to allow that to happen such that it would be for our good and his glory to remind us of that very thing. Not just even just to knock the chip off our shoulder, but to remind us of how desperate we are, how we're just hollowed out empty shells without him. Yeah, absolutely. All right, why don't you go ahead and read uh, Article 6? All right, two more. Article 6. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as a righteous judge for former sins, doth blind and hide in, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings, and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had, and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasions of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God useth for softening of others. Yeah, so this is this is sort of a downer article. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> um, you know, we talked about the um, error of equal ultimacy a couple weeks ago when we did the logical order of God's decrees. And this is an article that sometimes people who want to say, want to articulate equal ultimacy, will point to. And more or less what it's saying is that um, God, in an act of judgment, will sometimes... Um, entice someone to sin further, right? And the example you used from um, the lying spirits in the mouths of the prophets earlier is a good example. Right. Is right. that um, Ahab had already built up this habit of listening to prophets who were just going to tell him what he wants to hear. And so God actually sent a spirit, whether it was an angel or a demon, the text, you know, that's something people go back and forth on all the time. But God actually sent a spirit, an angel or a demon, some angelic being, to um, to in- entice those prophets to tell something that was a lie in order to not only bring Ahab to the battle and kill him, right, through the use of ordinary means, but also to harden him in his sin further. And that to me is like a, it's a really, for me, it, it shouldn't be terrifying, but it's a terrifying thought. It is. Um, you know, how, how terrifying, how terrible is it to fall in the hands of the living God is that sometimes those who harden their hearts against him, God lets them do that. He helps them do that. Right. Um, and how much more should we praise him and remind ourselves that God has been the one that softened our hearts, right? And he didn't have to do it. He did it because he loves us and because he is wise and he has ordered all things according to his will. And somehow softening the heart of a fool like me and regenerating me and calling me to his side and redeeming me, restoring me, giving me an inheritance with the son was in his, his wise plan, but it didn't have to be. Right. When we read examples in the scriptures of Ahab or King Saul, same kind of similar situation. Yeah. I think that should just shake us to the core because it reminds us that there is no way that the work of salvation is synergistic. There's just yeah. no way it's impossible. And that the alternative is, is God, Romans 1 style, giving over another act of volition, which essentially affirms their, our rebellious nature, the closed, clenched fist that's inside all of us. Um, you know, just like, I forget who said it. It might have been Robert Murray McShay who said something like, the seeds of all great sin are sown in my heart except by the grace of God. Yeah. Like, just that concept is a reality that's far closer to all of us than I think we realize. Yeah. Yeah. And this last, um, this last passage, this last sentence is really interesting to me. It says, um, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves, 
even under those means which God uses for the softening of others. Yeah, that's crazy, so, right? Yeah, what it's saying is that sometimes God, you know, the same means that God uses, right? The preaching of the word, for example. One person will hear the gospel preached, and that word will create faith in them by the power of the Spirit, and it will turn them to Christ, and it will save them. Another person, it will harden their hearts against God even further. Right. And that's, I mean, again, that's terrifying, is although I'm not responsible in terms of I'm not the one that makes my, my own heart soft, God uses the ordinary means of my volition at times to further soften my heart. That's an ordinary means that he uses. And in the same sense, he uses the ordinary means of someone else's volition to harden them against the gospel. So I just think that's a really interesting and really, I think a really wise thing that the the Westminster divines here include is that it's not the case. God is not a, um, an input output machine, right? He's not, you know, a plus B equals C in every single situation. Sometimes the input of the gospel God uses that input to create a reprobate sinner who will be contemned. He uses that gospel as further condemnation, and he uses that gospel to further drive them into rebellion against him. Right. Right. In a different sense than he uses it, it's not, it's not a binary, um, it's not a symmetrical thing as when he uses that gospel to bring about the salvation of someone, but he's still actively doing it. It's not a right. passive thing. Yeah. There's no formula. Right. It's not as if every time the scripture is preached in a certain particular way that all those within earshot are going to hear. And where I think this is even more convicting for me is in the lives of Christians. That little last phrase reminds us that every time that we experience something, again, especially the hard stuff, that we're in some way choosing to quench the Holy Spirit or not as we sort through those circumstances, whether it pushes us further away from God to be whiners and complainers and to pull away from him or whether we run to him for help and support and for love. And that's a really hard thing. Like that's easy the thing to say like in a podcast, but that's a really difficult thing when you're facing something like a health issue or a broken relationship or losing a job. It's a really tough thing to say that somehow God is using this for my softening and I should choose to embrace and lean into that rather than to become angry and bitter. Yeah. Yeah, so Jesse, why don't you close us out with Article 7? All right, so as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. So um, this is really getting at, you know, that Romans 8 passage, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? So what it's saying is that it's not as though providence only works for Christians. It's not like God, that there's the universe that's doing its own thing and God intervenes to bring about the good of Christians. Right. Providence is all expansive. It covers everything. Nothing happens apart from God's providence, but in a special way, in a unique way, God's providence is oriented towards the good of his church and the people who make it, the people who comprise it. Right. Right. And that, to me, that is um, that is the gospel in this chapter, right? It's that God loves his church. He loves his people. And even the hard providences, even the difficult things like the loss of a beloved teacher last Thursday, even that hard providence for the church. R.C. Sproul was a voice that the church needs. 
He was a voice that we all loved. We all wanted to hear on a regular basis. He had insightful and wisdom things, insightful and wise things to say. And I'm sure that had God's providence worked in a different way and he had recovered, he would have continued to have wise, insightful things to say to all of us. Absolutely. But even the death of R.C. Sproul, right? Even the pain that his family is feeling, the pain that we're all feeling to different levels and to different intensities, even that is, as this says, in a special manner, is oriented towards taking care of his church and disposing all things to the good of us, to our good. So as we, I mean, as we close out tonight, you know, we hope that this would be an episode that um, Dr. Sproul would be proud of. Um, We're not doing this to glorify him per se, or to um, win favor with anybody. Um, If he were to have been listening to this, we wouldn't be saying this to try to garner his attention, but he has been an example for all of us. And, um, you know, it, it, it hurts to think about the fact that we're not going to hear any new things from him. But I think we should all look to what the scriptures teach about providence. That's what he would have us to do. Right. And that's how he would comfort us if this was someone else. If he was the one, you know, trying to comfort the Reformed community at the death of some other beloved teacher in the Reformed community, he would say, look to God's providence, look to the gospel and look to the fact that God works all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Right. So I think, I think that's probably what we want to leave you with tonight. We're going to, um, we're going to wind this out. We're going to play a clip, um, from that last lecture in Dr. Sproul's series. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's like chills listening to his voice as he says what he says about the final rest. So Jesse, do you have any closing thoughts before we call in a night? I want to end before we hear from Dr. Sproul with what I think is my favorite quote from Puritan John Flavel about providence. He says, the most strict and proper notion of providence is nothing else but the performance of God's gracious purposes and promises to his people. Payment is the performance of promises. Grace makes the promise and providence makes the payment. Amen. All right, take us home, Dr. Sproul. But think of it, friends. What are you living for? Jonathan Edwards said, you know, Can you imagine somebody saving to go on a journey on a vacation for 10 years? And in order to get to their destination, they had to travel. And at the first night, they stopped at a wayside inn. And the next day, instead of continuing their travel to get to their desired destination that they had hoped and saved for for all this time, they decided to forego it all and to stay in the inn. That's the way we are. We hold on so tenaciously to life in this world because we haven't really been convinced of the glory that the Father has established in heaven for his people. But for all eternity, God has established this place, which is the end and the destiny of all of his people. It doesn't get any better than that. And again, every aspiration Every hope, every joy that we look forward to will be there and then some in this wonderful place. Our greatest moment will be the moment that we walk through the door and leave this world of tears and of sorrow, this valley of death, and enter into the presence 
of the Lamb.